0: Tonight we continue um, our series on the statement of faith. Um, we have, um, I think, this is part four. We've gone through the first uh, three articles, and the first, the fourth article tonight is on the Lord Jesus Christ, and let's uh, go ahead and just kind of read through that to understand what our statement of faith says and it's actually it's quite concise considering who jesus christ is what he has done and what he has accomplished and all that is promised but we'll take a look at the five primary statements that are made in our statement of faith we'll, we'll talk about why we believe these things and, uh, and then we'll talk about uh, you know if we think these things are accurate and and if there's anything that we would add to it um, if we could so, looking at the statement of faith on the Lord Jesus Christ, it starts off with, Jesus was begotten of the Holy Spirit in a miraculous manner, born of Mary, a virgin, as no other man has, was ever born or can ever be born of woman. He died, the second statement, he died, was buried, and rose from the dead bodily on the third day. And the third statement, he ascended bodily and will return bodily. Fourth statement, he is the eternal high priest. And fifth statement and final statement, he is deity. All right, so those are five uh, rather concise <laughs> statements. And, uh, and I'll tell you this, if I had disagreed with anything here, I might not have come here as the pastor. So, so there, there's no um, issues with what's, um, what's being said here. But let's um, look at each one of those statements and think through um, why it's important to affirm those truths as they are written. The first one being Jesus was begotten of the Holy Spirit in a miraculous manner, born of Mary, a virgin, as no other man was ever born or can ever be born of woman. Now, why, why is this statement important? Maureen? Well, for one thing, it means that Jesus did not inherit a sin nature, which is yeah. passed from the father to the, the child. Right, right, right. And so, uh, in order to uh, be born uh, without a sin nature, uh, he had to be conceived by the Holy Spirit uh, through Mary. Yeah, that, that's that's uh, that's an interesting point there. Um, he, from Genesis three fifteen, um, the Lord promised that he would be a seed of the woman, not necessarily a seed of, of Adam, but a seed of of Eve, and and so the the idea passed down uh, through the womanly line. Um, and there it also, if you study the, you know, the whole line of David and uh, what happened with, uh, with the final kings in Judah, God actually told the final king in Judah that there will not be a man who is a descendant of yours who will, who will take over the throne. And yet God could still be faithful to his promise to David because Mary, um, when you trace Mary's lineage, it goes back up to David. Um, and uh, Jesus Christ was uh, born of the Holy Spirit. Um, yeah, and, and um, Jesus Christ, when we talk about Jesus Christ, let me ask you this. Um, is he 50% man and 50% God? No. How would you describe it? 100% man, 100% God, right? It's the new math, as, as some, some might say. And it's one of those things that, you know what, we can't explain it by human means. But we know he is fully man and he is... Fully God. Now, the idea that he was born in a miraculous manner, what's the significance, aside from what you just mentioned, what's the significance of him being born in this miraculous manner? Well, he, he's, he's deity. He's God. Yeah, he is deity. He is God. Right. Um, has there anyone else that has ever been born the way he was born? There can never be another. Yeah, there, there can never be another. And, and, and what was the significance in terms of prophetic fulfillment? Yeah, but in terms of his virgin birth, I mean, we go back to Isaiah seven fourteen, right? And um, turn with me to Isaiah seven fourteen. Take a look at that. In fact, start um, in Isaiah 7, uh, verse 10. And at this time, the, the king um, was a man by the name of Ahaz. Or Ahaz, if you want to pronounce it uh, like, like the Hebrews. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Now, Ahaz was not a good king. Uh, he had not been a good king. and uh, but But now, as the Lord is telling him to ask for a sign, Ahaz says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. It sounds like a very... Um, noble response but if there's ever a time in which you can test the Lord it's when the Lord tells you to test him right Mm -hmm. said ask a sign and uh, he says I will not ask in verse 13 um, then he said listen now O house of David is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign behold a virgin will be with child and bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel Um, now at this time why obviously we see the miracle in that right because children can't be born of a virgin there is there is a relationship that's required with a man in order to bear a seed to have a child and it was funny because in the past when I first became a believer we near Grace Community Church where I was we had a Buddhist temple right down the street and um, I'm of um, I'm of Thai descent, and that was a Thai Buddhist temple. And uh, me and one of my friends, Sean, who actually came and visited uh, Western Avenue Baptist Church for my installation service, uh, me and him would go to the Thai Buddhist temple, and we would actually witness to Buddhist monks there. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things we talked about were some of the prophecies of Jesus Christ, and and um, we were talking to them about the the miracle of the virgin birth. And it was interesting. Uh, we we asked we asked the monks, "Do you believe that?" And they're like, "Oh yeah, we believe it." It's like, "Ma, wow, that's kind of surprising. You you actually believe that?" jesus was was born of a virgin well it turns out they think that this is not really all that unique they're like oh yeah there there've been other virgin births though (laughs) really and i was like well how many are there and they're like oh probably around seven such an arbitrary number but you you know from from their point of view it's like oh yeah that's no no big deal you know but the the idea here oh it is a big deal and and this is one of the uh, attacks um against christianity is People don't believe in the miracles. You're like, it's impossible for someone to be born of, um, of a virgin woman. And some even look at the Hebrew and say, no, that's not the word for virgin. That's the word for like a young maiden, right? But if it's just a young maiden, how is it a sign? Right? I mean, the Lord's saying, here's the sign. Okay, this is a young maiden. Well, okay, well, that narrows it down to, like, everyone, right? Yeah. <laughs> that a child's going to be born of a young maiden. I mean, so, so that, that, that's, there's nothing miraculous about that. But the fact that the Lord gives this a, as a sign shows that he will accomplish it. And it's through, um, obviously, Jesus Christ. Now, Emmanuel, what does that mean? God with us. God with us. Um, that, that is a very significant term. Um, so God has never, with any other prophet um ever portrayed himself as being with the people as he was with with christ right and so and and if you continue reading from isaiah and we won't do this here but isaiah chapter seven eight and nine you'll see that phrase show up again god with us god with us god with us um in terms of protecting judah Um, so it's absolutely amazing and then when you get to the book of john turn with me to the book of john the gospel according to john You know, one of the amazing things about saying that God is with us to, to the Israelites, the way that they knew God was amongst them. Well, let me ask you. They, they had a, a, a visible manifestation of God. There was a way that they knew that God was in their presence. What was it that was in the presence of Israel that let the people know that God was with them? What was it? The Shekinah glory. It was the Shekinah glory. It was the Shekinah glory filling up the holiest of holies in the tabernacle and then the temple. In fact, you go back to Exodus 40, right after they build the tabernacle, you will see the Shekinah glory automatically fills the holiest of holies in the tabernacle. And then you go to 1 Kings 8. When they replace the tabernacle with the temple, as soon as they're done, boom, again, you see the Shekinah glory come down from heaven, filling up the holiest of holies. And then when Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 10, Ezekiel prophesies that this glory leaves the temple. And then almost immediately, Jerusalem gets sacked. The temple gets destroyed. I mean, it was a sign that God was no longer with them. God was no longer protecting them. God was no longer treating them as if they were his people. So that, that presence of glory was, was crucial. And then when you think about Jesus coming, and you think about the transfiguration account, you know, you go to Matthew seventeen where Jesus Christ, you, you know it says that that his face shone like the sun. Well, guess what that was representative of. It's the same Shekinah glory. And then when you get to John, take a look at John, we we know John one one obviously. this uh, affirms uh, the the deity of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And then we get to verse fourteen, and was verse fourteen say, and the word became flesh, all right? So this word that existed from the beginning became flesh. In other words, he became incarnate. He became a man and dwelt among us. Now, that word for dwelt, um, that, that Greek word is um, skenos, um, skenos, and, and it's, it's, it shares the same root as the verb skenao. Skenao, and I'm I'm sorry. This is skenao. This is the verb skenao. Shares the same root with the noun skenos. Skenos in the Greek means tabernacle. So the idea here is that Jesus didn't simply just dwell with them, but dwelt with them as if he were a walking temple, a walking tabernacle. And just to just just to further that idea, look at what John says. Said he dwelt among us, and we saw his what? His glory. His glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So you think of this this name, Emmanuel, God with us, and how that looked to the Israelites. To the Israelites, God was with us through the temple. God was with us through the tabernacle, through the Shekinah glory. And here John is saying Jesus was the walking tabernacle amongst us, and we saw his glory. That was God with us. I mean, it, it, tremendous symbols and, and connections here that, you know, can't be possible unless Jesus Christ were truly God, uh, truly God in human flesh. And certainly none of the prophets could ever claim this kind of um, this kind of majesty, this kind of proof of, of divinity. So he, he was begotten of the Holy Ghost in a miraculous manner, uh, born of Mary, a virgin, as no other man was ever born or can ever be born of woman. So we would affirm that miracle, and we would affirm it's a miracle because God is the one that made it happen. And it has never happened with anyone else um, except for Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of this prophecy. That's the whole point of, of his uniqueness and the fact that we can claim that he is fully God and fully man. Now, the any questions about that? Any comments or questions about that? Well, we get to the next statement. The next statement says he died, was buried, and rose from the dead bodily on the third day. Well, this is pretty easy to affirm, right? And um, what's interesting is when Jesus—do do you know when Jesus started to tell his disciples that he had to die? You guys know when that happened? He actually didn't reveal that to them until late in his ministry. Turn to Matthew 16. First book of the New Testament, book of Matthew, chapter 16. And and this was a... I actually preached uh, through this uh, while I was candidating here. Matthew 16, this is the confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ. Um, and, And you see in... Starting in verse 13, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, that was a very Gentile area. Jesus was bringing them into a Gentile area, not to minister to Gentiles, but to focus on um, mentorship and discipleship with his disciples. They go into this area. He's asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And that's how he often referred to himself, Son of Man. And they said, some say John the Baptist um, and others, Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets so clearly you know the people who have witnessed Jesus Christ they know he's at least what yeah he's a prophet a prophet that's someone sent from God they recognize he is sent from God and then verse 15 he says to them but who do you say that I am Simon Peter answered you are the Christ the son of the living God and Jesus said blessed are you Simon Barjona because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you but my father who is in heaven um, and, and then verse 18, I say to you, you are Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. Verse 19, I will give you the key, keys uh, of the kingdom of heaven. But then when you go down to verse 21, from that time, from what time? From that time that, Jesus, uh, that Peter made that confession about who Jesus was. That's, uh, he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem Suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Um, So right here we, we have, and of course, this is where Peter tries to get in his way and says, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And that's when. Jesus um, says, uh, you know, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. But Jesus would say this at least three times from here to to the end, reminding them, I must go to Jerusalem. I must must die. I must, uh, you know, I, I must suffer many things, die, and then be raised up on the third day. And it's interesting that, you know, if you read Luke's account of this, Luke says they didn't understand what he meant. They didn't understand what he was saying. But Jesus all all along was saying that this is what he came to do. So he not only died, was buried, and rose from the dead bodily on the third day. He actually came ex- explicitly for that purpose. He came explicitly to die, and to be buried, and to be raised again on the third day. Now, why are each of those things um, important? What, what's the significance of him dying? He was the Lamb of God. What's that? He was the Lamb of God, he was the Lamb of God which means what? perfect sacrifice perfect sacrifice and the lamb of god when you hear lamb of god what do you think of when you hear lamb of god what what what, what does that trace back to passover. yeah passover yeah you can think of the passover lamb right i mean um, exodus chapter 12 turn me to exodus chapter 12 You know, and I never get tired of, uh, of telling this story because in Exodus chapter 12, nine of the 10 plagues have already happened. The 10th plague has not. The 10th plague has not yet occurred. Um, and, and you know what? Um, what God does, he institutes this Passover observance for the Jewish people. And, um, and you know, he's, he says to them that this is going to be something that you're going to commemorate for the rest of your generations. Right. You're going to do this over and over again. They haven't even bes- been set free from, from Egypt yet. But he's saying that this Passover lamb is going to be how you're going to remember what God has done for you in setting you free. What's amazing is that this is how God operates because you think about um, our July, our 4th of July, our day of independence, right? Um, You know, we had to achieve that independence first before we could commemorate it as a holiday, right? It had to happen first and then later we say, hey, that's an important day. Let's remember that as a holiday. God does it the opposite way around. He says you start celebrating and I'm going to show you why you're celebrating, I mean, that's how God operates, right? So he's telling them, this is what you're going to do. You're going to, you're going to eat this Passover lamb. And, and, and not only that, but, you know, he does something different also from the prior nine um, plagues that he says, you're going to take the blood of this lamb. And, and what are you going to do with the blood? Yeah, you're going to put it on the, on the posts of your door. And why are you going to put it on the post of the door? Because the destroyer is going to come. And when the destroyer sees that blood, what's he going to do? Passover. 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 And that's why we call it the Passover. It's going to pass over your house. It's not going to take your firstborn. (coughs) It's going to pass over your house. But here's the thing. I mean, it's like, why the imagery? I mean, you know, look, the Lord brought the first nine plagues without requiring any special actions from Israel. The Lord brought the first nine plagues without any threat to Israel. But suddenly this 10th plague was going to be a threat to them. And they had to follow these steps in order to avoid that 10th plague where the firstborn of each household would be taken. And it's fascinating when you think about it. Why does God set up? Well, obviously, it's going to be a commemoration because this is how they're going to be set free. But why does he have to connect it to the blood of the lamb on their doorpost? Because he wants them to remember forever that they were set free from slavery to Egypt by the blood of the lamb that the blood of the Lamb, that the judgment that came upon Egypt passed over them, and, and they were set free on that 10th plague. And so, so from that 10th plague, they're, they're, they're free to go. So let, let's take a look at this, um, Exodus chapter 12. And so uh, I, I, we probably don't have to read all of this, but if you um, let's take a look at starting in verse 7. So after killing the, the, the lamb, says, Moreover, they shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night roasted with fire. They shall eat it with unleavened bread, with bitter herbs. Do not eat it any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire. So there's all these preparatory steps. Uh, verse 10, you should not leave any of it left over until the morning. Um, and and verse eleven, you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded. Well, what does that mean? And your sandals on your feet. The idea is that you're in a rush. You're going to eat this because you're getting ready to go. You have to hurry because you're going to be set free. You you got to be ready to go. Verse twelve is when he talks about the plague is going to bring. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night. I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So there you have the, the call of God to go ahead and, and, and you know, the steps they were to take with the blood of the lamb and how he's going to come and take the firstborn. But then later on in this chapter, um, he, he talks about this as being a memorial. All right. Verse 23, Exodus 12, verse 23, the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall observe this rite. So this is the institution of the Passover. And verse 26, when your children say to you, what does this rite mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. So whenever they were to, and, and you know, the fact that If you are around Jewish people, in fact, if you're ever in a Jewish community and go to Walmart, they'll have a special section that's dedicated for, you know, for the Passover when it comes to that time of year. You know, the kinds of foods and and preparation and steps that they have to take and the things that they need, the equipment and stuff. Um, But Israel's to this day, Israelites to this day, they observe the Passover. And it's amazing when you think of that, that, that history, it traces all the way back here to the time of Moses. The fact that they still celebrate the Passover is an ongoing testimony to what God did way back in the days of Moses in setting them free. And, and they were always to remember as they eat the Passover lamb that it was the blood of the lamb on the doorpost that spared us and set us free. And so that image, when you get to John one twenty nine, John the Baptist looks at Jesus Christ and said, Behold, what? The Lamb, the Lamb of God who comes to take the sins of the world away. Yes, Mike. Yeah, uh, also they were told not to break a bone yeah. in that because there was no bone broken in the body of Jesus. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting parallel, isn't it? Yeah, and, and Psalm, I think Psalm 22 would also talk about that as well that um that no bones uh, would be broken yeah there's all these interesting parallels from the old testament pointing to christ yes gail i have a question i've never seen this before this is i will pass over you and if i if i don't see the blood i will allow the destroyer to kill you yeah basically yeah so yeah this did satan is kill them what's that did, did satan kill them well, who, who's who's the, who's the destroyer that's the question right who's the who's the destroyer who's the Well, earlier, I mean earlier, when you look uh, further up in Exodus 12, he says, I will pass over you. Um, Yeah, verse 12. So chapter 12, verse 12, I will go go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods, I will execute judgment. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And then later he says, the destroyer will pass over you this is very interesting so the question is okay who is it did he allow the destroyer to kill those well and, and maybe the, a better question who is the destroyer who is the destroyer I mean because if it's not God the father but, it, but God is identifying it with himself it could be a messenger it could be one of his angels I mean it could be Jesus Christ I, I don't know this could be a pre-incarnate Christ I can't say for sure right but but God identifies himself as the one passing over and then later you see a destroyer being referenced almost like a third person so this is one of those things where, you know, we understand that God is a, is a unity and also there's a plurality within the Godhead. So this might have been one of the members of the Godhead. You know, I guess we won't know for sure until we get to heaven. But uh, yeah, good question. Good question. Yeah, so we, we see this um, imagery go back to the Old Testament and going back to the statement. Jesus, he died, was buried, rose from the dead bodily on the third day. Now, what's the significance of him <laughs> rising from the dead bodily on the third day? Yeah, and and why is that true? Why is that true? Yeah, yeah. You you know, the the proof, uh, you know, here's the thing. And and go with me to Luke Luke 24. Luke 24. So the third gospel, the third book of the New Testament. Go to Luke chapter 24 towards the end of the book of Luke. And starting in verse 13, you have what we call the road to Emmaus. The, the road to Emmaus. And, and essentially, at this point in time in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has already arose. He's already risen. He's already you know, emptied the, the, the tomb. The tomb is empty now. And uh, verse 13, Behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Um, they were talking with each other about all the things that had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he being Jesus said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood looking sad. Now, why are they sad? Why do you think they're sad? Was that? Yeah, yeah, they thought Jesus was still dead. Maybe the body was taken away. We don't know where Jesus is. And we had already confessed. We had already heard the confession that he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. And what was it that Israel was expecting their Messiah to do? Say, say, say that again. Save them. Save them. And, and what were you saying, Linda? Yeah, to reign and to rule and to restore Israel to its rightful place. Israel is not a theocracy. They're under the rulership of the Roman Empire, right? They're under the rulership, the reign of, of a Roman ruler. And so they were expecting this Messiah would come and restore them back to prominence, restore them back to being a theocracy, and, and bring victory over the enemies of Israel. So they're sad because they think, wow, this guy was a failure. We believed, and he was a failure. That's what they're sad. We don't know where he is. He, he failed. He, he, he ended up getting sent to his death, and, and now we don't know where his body is. Right? But if we keep reading on. So, verse 18, one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he, being Jesus, said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who is a prophet. And notice they just say prophet now because they're thinking, He's been killed. He's clearly not the Messiah. He's not the Christ. I mean, that's what I see in that. They're not calling him the Christ anymore. He's just a prophet. So he was a prophet, mighty indeed, and and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But look at verse 21. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. Verse 22, but also some women amongst, among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that, he, that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, found it exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. Now, this is very interesting because, you know, when God in his providence, you know, he has that, it's going to be of all people, women that actually discover the tomb is empty, and that women are the one that actually speak to the angels there. The angels are the ones that announce to women that he has risen. Um, women were not trusted in this time in history. They were not, they were not seen as, as reliable witnesses. Witnesses had to be men. But in God's sovereignty, he uses women to be those initial witnesses. And, and after receiving the report of the woman, they can see that the tomb is empty, but they don't understand what's going on, and, and they're not even sure if they can believe what the women are telling them. You know, that the angel said that, yeah, he, he is risen, because where is he? And, of course, these, these folks are speaking, and they don't even realize that Jesus is in their midst. And verse 24, I just read verse 24. Verse 25, and he said to them, Jesus said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And I see this statement as a corrective. He wasn't just a prophet. Do you realize he was, he, you guys are saying he was a prophet, he was crucified, and we were hoping that he was the Christ. And Jesus responds with, yes, he was the Christ. And do you not realize the Old Testament prophesied that these things had to happen? You know, so what we see that when Jesus was died, buried and rose from the dead bodily on on the third day, it had been prophesied from the Old Testament. And you're right. If he had not rose, he could not be the savior. If he had not rose, he's simply just another Old Testament prophet whom the people persecuted and murdered. Right. Um, But the fact that he rose um, gives us hope. Turn with me to Romans chapter one. Romans chapter 1, in this opening, this, this, is, this is powerful. I, I love this. I mean, we, we get the opening from Paul. Paul introduced himself, saying, Paul, a, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy scriptures So right there in verse 2, Paul is talking about the prophecies of the, uh, of the Christ um, in the Holy Scriptures. Verse 3, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. And look at this, verse 4. Who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. But look at the importance there that he was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So there was a. Of course, he is always the Son of God. We know that. We know that from the baptism of Jesus Christ. God the Father came from the heavens and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He repeated that statement again at the transfiguration of Christ. But when Paul says here he was declared the Son of God with power, the idea is that this is what proved it. This, this was the proof by the power of god that he indeed was the son of god that made it absolutely indisputable when jesus christ arose from the grave arose from from his tomb and then appeared to the disciples and was with them and ultimately ascended up into heaven it was proof that everything that he said everything that had been prophesied about the messiah about the christ was absolutely true and the resurrection was a declaration with power that he was the son of god and that's That is our hope because if Jesus Christ was able to conquer death and, you know, it's like what um, I think it was Benjamin Franklin that said um, the only two things that are certain in life is what? Death and taxes, right? Death and taxes. Yeah, Death has been a certainty from the beginning of time. Everyone who's ever lived has not been able to escape death except for those who were sucked up into heaven, which as far as I know was Enoch and Elijah right Those are the only two people in the Old Testament, but death has come to everyone who has ever lived. That's Romans 5 when Paul says that that uh, well, let's take a look at Romans 5. you're right in Romans Romans 5. Romans 5:12. 5, Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. This is a universal truth that everyone dies and no one comes back. You know, but when Jesus Christ came back, he, he declared himself with power to be the Son of God, and he declared, and basically that declaration showed that not only was he God, all right, not only was he the Son of God, but that all the promises that he has granted to us, that he has given to us for those who confess him, who repent of their sins, confess him, and follow after him, all the promises of eternal life will come true. That though we will suffer a physical death, we can be absolutely certain that we will be raised in a glorious body. You know, and that's um, 1 Corinthians 15, you know, where Paul says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then our faith is in vain. It's absolutely worthless. And, and when you look at uh, the book of Acts, um, let's go back to Acts chapter 2. You know, Acts chapter 2, you've got the, uh, the the very first sermon after the ascension of Jesus Christ. Um, Peter um, preaches this sermon. He quotes many Old Testament scriptures. It's very interesting when you think about the fact that Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, showing them from the scriptures how, the, how, how from Moses and all the prophets that all the prophecies had to be fulfilled. You know, it's... I would have loved to have been there listening to what Jesus Christ shared with them. What scriptures did he go to? What did he he point to to show the disciples that all these things were to happen? Well, we actually know. How do we know? We know by what the apostles actually preached. Because what they preached is what what their minds were made enlightened to in that time with Jesus Christ. And here you, you see all these wonderful scriptures from the Old Testament that Peter right off the bat starts proclaiming. Showing that Jesus is the Christ, that, that he rose from the dead, and all these things had to happen. But what's very interesting, as part of this whole presentation, you know, Jesus starts the um, his sermon in chapter 2, verse 14. But you go down to verse 32. Verse 32, every... Just about every gospel testimony that you'll find in Acts includes this very important truth in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. We are all witnesses. Now, if you think about all the excuses that that people come up to to try to hide this fact. I mean, some people have suggested that, for instance, um, the disciples were delusional right they they were delusional they they were or they were hallucinating they didn't really see Jesus they just thought they saw Jesus well that might work if there was only one person but you're talking about 11 disciples minus Judas. you're talking about 11 disciples who all witnessed you know who who are the main apostles and so you're you're saying that all of them shared the same delusion all of them hallucinating the exact same way no that's not that's not likely you know, and, and when you think about, well, they, they wanted to, you know, try to redeem their faith. They, they wanted to, you know, they, they didn't want to show Jesus Christ to be a failure, so they made this up. Well, the thing is, when Jesus Christ was crucified, how many of his disciples were there with him? How many of them had the courage to actually be there? There's only one. Yeah, that was John. You know, the, the rest of them scattered. I mean, Peter even denied Jesus Christ three times. They didn't even have the courage to be there at his crucifixion. And then yet, inexplicably, suddenly they've gone from being so frightened that they didn't even want to be at his crucifixion to now boldly proclaiming the truth and even being willing to die for it. How do you humanly explain that? You know, and I tell you what, if Jesus was not raised from the grave, if Jesus was not resurrected, these disciples— would have known it for a fact. I mean, okay, I tell you Jesus was raised. I can read from the scriptures Jesus was was raised, and we just take it on faith. We weren't actually there, but the disciples were actually there. When they claim Jesus was raised from the dead, they're either lying blindly, I mean right to your face, because they're saying something that they know didn't happen, that they know they didn't see, or they really saw it, and now they're willing to put their life on the line for it. You know, And so when they proclaim the gospel, you, you see this over and over again, that, that, the, that the boldness that they bring to the table, the boldness that they bring in proclaiming it is that they know everything Jesus said was true. They saw Jesus with their own eyes. He was really raised. And, and, now, and they're even willing to die for this truth. And here's the thing, you know, you think about people all over the world, and especially like um, radical fundamentalists, uh, especially like with the Muslim faith, you know, you get these terrorists who are willing to, uh, willing to die, you know, for their convictions. We, we see that, you know, but they're willing to die for their convictions. But it's really convictions that they, they've just kind of adopted to be true. They don't know for certain with their own eyes whether it's true or not. These disciples would have known. These disciples knew for a fact that either they did see Jesus or they didn't see Jesus. And if they didn't see Jesus and they lied about it, consider this, that they were willing to die for what they would have known not to be true. And how many people are willing to do that? I don't think anyone's willing to die for a conviction that they actually are not convicted over. You know, but these disciples, they lived in the time of Jesus. They actually saw him being resurrected. And if they've got the boldness to proclaim the gospel and be willing to be martyred over it, they really saw something. They really saw something that gave them that kind of hope. So very important, Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the dead bodily on the third day. Um, There's a seminary out on the East Coast, Union Theological Seminary, very, very liberal seminary, always been a liberal seminary. In fact, if you've ever read the um, biographical accounts of um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer from Germany, he, he came and visited America, um, he's a Christian. He was trained in Germany. He came over here, and and he had heard so much about these debates between the fundamentalists and the Christian liberals. At that time, in the early 1900s, there was that divide between fundamentalists and Christian liberals. And fundamentalists held to the truth of the Bible. That we believe the miracles of the Bible. We believe everything that it says. The 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 liberals would say, no, we don't believe in all the miracles. We don't believe everything is true. We believe that these scriptures have errors, and you know they're just is just written by men. But we believe in kind of the principles and being a good person and whatnot so you had this kind of divide dietrich bonhoeffer came and 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 in the view of society society would view these liberals as being intellectuals right these are the learned men these are the ones that went to universities they did all this studying you know and, and they've come up with all this so-called evidence and and so they they've got all these progressive and, and new and kind of new and liberal ideas dietrich bonhoeffer came and he listened to both sides he concluded that the Christian liberals are not even half the intellectuals of the fundamentalists. He hadn't even taken a side yet, but as he's listening to the liberals, he couldn't even go to their churches. Because he's like, there's no gospel there. There's absolutely no gospel there. But even during that time, one of the major seminaries was Union Theological Seminary. I bring up Union Theological Seminary because just this past year on Easter, the president of Union Theological Seminary, who's a woman, tweeted in in you know, exclamation marks that you don't have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead to be, to be a Christian. I mean, people, that's, that's what people say. You know, and um, you, know, you get people like um, Oprah Winfrey who will tell you that, you know, she's a believer, but she doesn't believe that Jesus Christ really had to die for our sins. So in other words, this whole truth about, you know, he, he was buried and, and uh, he, he rose again and, and the whole <laughs> significance of that is completely lost on her. She's like, Jesus came to show us the way to live. Not, not that he had to die for our sins. She, didn't, she doesn't buy into that. You know, so they, you know, these are truths that the reason why it's in the statement is that we want to affirm the fact that these things had to happen. And, and through several of these passages, hopefully you're encouraged by that. I mean, we see that very clearly in the scriptures that these things had to happen. Any comments or questions on that? All right, the next one. Let's go to the next one it says he ascended bodily and will return bodily he ascended bodily and will return bodily now why is this important first of all how would you prove this that he ascended bodily and he returned bodily how would you prove this ascended where (coughs) into heaven and he will return so where would you go Yeah, I mean, we got the verse reference right there in the statement. Acts chapter 1. Go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, um, the ascension. Um, And really in 7 and 8, this is when um, Jesus Christ gives them uh, really kind of a restatement of the Great Commission. Um, saying that you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. That's in verse 8. And then we get to verse 9 and it says, After he, after Jesus had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go up into heaven. You know, sometimes we think of um, heaven as being purely a spiritual place with no kind of location. But what we see here is that Jesus is lifted up into the sky. And the angels say it's that same way that he went up into the sky that he's going to come back down. He's going to come back down from the sky. And turn with me to Revelation 19. final book of the new testament revelation 19 verse 11 and these are awesome words of our lord i mean these are you know the, the, these these are words that people who are against god who are against the lord um, should shudder with fear at this notion verse 11 um, John, who wrote this, says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with the rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So Jesus will return bodily, and the victory that the Israelites were expecting the first time is going to come the second time. When he comes the second time, the first time he came to save, the second time he comes to conquer. He comes to conquer and he comes to render judgment. You know, I, um, I, I taught a Bible study at my workplace, um, at my last place of work. And I said that, you know, Jesus came the first time to save and the second time he came to wage war and to, and to bring judgment. And um, one of the people that sat in that study was offended by that, saying, I, I don't like the way you're portraying Jesus Christ. I, you know, you make him out to be this kind of monster. I'm like, look, I'm just going off the scriptures. And no, he's not a monster. He's coming to wage war against those who are deserving of that kind of judgment. You know, this is the justice of God. When Paul says, you know, when Paul reminds us, you know, not to take vengeance because vengeance belongs to the Lord. That's a quote of the Old Testament. The Lord would say that vengeance belongs to me. This is when vengeance will be repaid is with the return of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to uh, Psalm 2. Uh, psalm 2, um, this is an awesome messianic psalm, and uh, we won't uh, read through all of this, but essentially we see in the beginning the nations are in an uproar, the people are devising a vain thing, they're standing against God, they're standing against his anointed. Um, verse 7, if you go to Psalm 2, verse 7, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And in verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. We saw those same images in Revelation 19, where we just read a moment ago. But look at verse 10. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. And I love verse 12, because verse 12, you've got the gospel wrapped up right in this verse. Do homage to the sun. The idea is kiss the sun. Do homage, bow down to the son. And here's what's interesting about verse 12. If you don't pay homage to the son, if you don't bow down, if you don't kiss the son, then he will become angry. So you do this that he not become angry and you perish in the way. This is God the father warning about the wrath, not of his own wrath, but of the wrath of God the son. And it's amazing because you don't hear God the father warning of anyone's wrath except his own. Except in these cases where he is warning about the wrath of his own son, saying you worship him, you pay homage to him, that he not become angry. And then look at the rest of verse 12, for his wrath may soon be kindled. And then how blessed are all who take refuge in him. And it makes very clear right there in verse 12, you're either for him or you're against him. You're either taking homage in, in him, and you're either being protected by him, or you're against him and you're going to be the object of his fury and his wrath. At the end of the day, when Jesus Christ comes back, the only question is, are you worshiping Jesus Christ or not? If you worship Jesus, you will be protected. If not, his wrath will be kindled against you right there in psalm 2 verse 12 so he will come back it's the importance of the idea he will come back he's coming back to render judgment he's coming back to conquer he's coming back to bring an end uh, to um, this this temporal world the next statement in our um, statement of faith he is the eternal high priest he is the eternal high priest where would you go to see this yeah hebrews hebrews talks all about it but let me take you to the source because every time I see these kinds of statements, in every statement, they don't go back to the source, which is Psalm 110. Go to Psalm 110. Because Hebrews is really an exposition of Psalm 110. It's drawing from a lot of the truths in Psalm 110. And of all the Psalms, I mean, there, we have 150 Psalms total. There is no Psalm that is quoted in the New Testament more than Psalm 110. So Psalm 110 is pretty important. And the, the, the verse that's quoted most often is verse 1 this is the verse that's most quoted most often referenced the lord says to my lord sit at my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool for your feet and right here that simple sentence right here i mean this you think about this. this is so amazing it's such a simple sentence but in this simple statement you have the implications of both the first coming and the second coming see the lord god the father says to my lord that's jesus christ sit at my right hand why is he sitting Because now his work is done. The idea is he has ascended up into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God. And God the Father tells him, now you can sit until the time of your second coming. Because that's what he goes on to say. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Verse 2, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So Jesus is to sit at the right hand of God the Father. But he's not to sit there forever. He's to sit there until... The enemies of God are made a footstool for his feet, and then he will return. So we we see that same idea that he's coming back for judgment. He's coming back to rule. But verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. A priest, you know what a priest does? A priest intercedes. A priest stands in between God and man. I mean, a priest, we think of priests as being these Catholics that wear white collars. That's, that's not what a priest is. Uh, a priest is anyone who represents God to man and represents man to God when bringing intercessions. It's just a mediator. And Jesus Christ here is a priest, but he's not just a priest according to the Mosaic Covenant. He is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. What's the significance of Melchizedek? Melchizedek's only mentioned one other time in the Old Testament. That goes back to early part of Genesis when when Abraham was, um, you know, gave a sacrifice to God through the priest Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was the only priest in all of the Old Testament who was also a king. He, He was a king and he was a priest. And here, David's talking about his future son who's a king, but he's also going to be a priest in the order of melchizedek and melchizedek is not tied to the mosaic covenant the mosaic covenant has been completed it's been fulfilled it's done but the priesthood of jesus christ forever continues and hebrews really draws upon that truth to show that jesus christ mediates for us now why does he have to mediate for us Who, who's bringing accusations against us day and night yeah satan Satan's bringing accusations against day, uh, us day and night. And if you want an example of that, you just have to go to the book of Job, right? I mean, Job chapter 1, that's, that's when Satan goes before God. And, and, uh, and, and God actually asks him, have you considered my servant Job? You know, and so Satan goes after Job trying to get him to curse God. You know, trying to say that the only reason why Job is righteous, the only reason why Job is, is faithful is because you've protected him with these hedges. Take away those hedges and he will curse you. And this is what Satan does. Satan tries to, tries to, you know, denounce God, tries to attack his character, tries to make him out to be a liar. Just like what he said to the woman in the Garden of Eden, has God really said. You know, the idea of trying to put in her mind that, you know what, God has lied to you. You know, that's, that's how Satan operates. But we see here that he is the Jesus Christ from Psalm 110, verse 4. This is where it starts. He is our eternal high priest. Um, And this, of course, we know that he paid the sacrifice for us once and for all that paid for our sins But there's also a sense in the fact that he's our eternal high priest There is also our eternal security wrapped up in that as well That he is constantly protecting us against the accusations of the evil one As our eternal high priest, he's interceding for us, he is empowering us, He is watching over us He is making sure that his will is done through his church and the final statement we have in this statement of faith is that he is deity. He is deity. So we have many verses we can go to um, here to prove that he is deity. We have a few listed here. I mentioned some this morning, but we know John 1.1, 1, 1, right? Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Um, Titus 2.13 listed here. That's when Paul says that, uh, calls uh, Jesus Christ our great God and Savior. Um, Colossians 1 we've seen that before but look at it again Colossians 1 Colossians 1 chapter 1 verse 15 Colossians 1 verse 15 we read um, he is the image of the invisible God The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. I mean, that's an amazing statement. That all things were created through Christ and they were created for Christ, they were created for his purpose. And to say that he is the image of the invisible God, that's very different from us. We are created in the image of God, he is the image of God. He is the image of God. And, and when we think about the idea that we are created in the image of God, turn to Romans 8 28. We are created in the image of God, but that image has been tarnished by our sin. That image has been tarnished by, by, our, by our rebellion against God. You know, the fact that, that we sin, the fact that we rebel against Him, the fact that we are not perfectly holy as according to His standard. We have tarnished that image. But when you look at Romans 8, 28 and 29, this is, this is amazing too. Romans eight twenty eight is the great verse on God's sovereignty, that God is in control of all things. He causes all things to come together for good. Verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But look at this, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, there's that word, predestined to become conformed to the image of what? His son. Isn't that interesting? We're, we're created in the image of God, and now that we're saved, we're be, to be conformed into the image of who? God. Why would we be conformed into the image of his son unless his son is also God? Right? I mean, that would be an insult to conform us in the image of someone else when we, were actually, when we were actually created in the image of God. We're being conformed into the image of his son because his son is the perfect representation of God because he is God. So he, he is deity. There are many, many verses, many places you can go to to, to prove this. And we've already talked about many of those verses. Um, some of the things that I would add to this statement is basically what we just read from here. The fact that all things are created through him and sustained by him. All things are created through Jesus Christ and are sustained by Christ. Um, I mean, again, you, Colossians 1, I'll just read this for you again. Colossians one sixteen. for by him, all things were created, both heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Um, he is before all things in him. All things hold together. So the reason why the universe doesn't just explode, the reason why we have systems that continue, the reason why we are sustained, the reason why we continue to live day by day, and we have oxygen, and we have water, and we have food, is that the power of Christ holds it all together. I mean, that is an amazing statement when you think about it. That testifies to the amazing power of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, let's see, one more. Go to um, John 1. John 1, and I'll just read this for you. John 1, uh, verse 3. um, John really says a very similar thing. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So he is essentially essentially affirming the same thing, um, that all things were created through Christ. And the author of Hebrews, when you read chapter 1, he says the same thing, that that all things were created through Christ. So clearly, Jesus Christ is is fully a deity so i mean the, the, the things i would add would uh, would be what i had mentioned before that you know he has created all things he has sustained all things um we haven't really talked about um you know we know that he is fully man and he's fully god but in philippians 2 it says that he emptied himself you know i, I would uh, probably give an ex- explanation that in, in him emptying himself it doesn't mean he emptied himself as a deity that's what a lot of people wrongly assume when they see that passage in philippians 2 But rather, he emptied himself by taking the form of man. Um, He had existed in the form of God. So visually, he was clearly God. But by taking the form of man, he looks like one of us. He looks like creation. So he is yet fully God, but he is also fully man. His emptying himself was not letting go of anything, but was rather taking something on, which is taking on the form that we have. I would probably want to add the fact that he died as our substitute. Um, he died for our sub- as our substitute. He died vicariously for our sins. He died in our place. And the the, the verse I think of would be um, well, John one twenty nine. We talked about how he's the Lamb of God. Isaiah fifty three. We have many. You know, Isaiah fifty three is a big prophecy of the suffering servant. How he's going to bear our transgressions and and sins. Um, I would say that Jesus Christ now possesses all authority on earth and on heaven. He said that before the Great Commission. Uh, Matthew 28 um, 18 we also see that in Philippians 2 when God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that every tongue will confess every knee will bow down to him um, I will talk about um, I, I might add something about double imputation anyone know what a double imputation means that's a very technical sounding term but it's a wonderful truth double imputation well what is imputation taking on, taking on something right it's it's being accounted something um I said this already, but last verse. Okay, last verse. 2 Corinthians 5.21. My wife knows I have a bad habit of saying last verse, and then I go to another verse. Um, 2 Corinthians um, 5.21. And this is just a wonderfully packed verse here. And verse 21 starts off with he, that's referring to God the Father. He made him, the him is Jesus Christ. So God made Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. So what does that mean? It doesn't mean Jesus Christ was sinful. We know that. Jesus Christ did not um, commit any sin. He did nothing wrong. But when he says he made him to be sin on our behalf, that's talking about the penalty that he paid on the cross that he took on the sin that we have. So the sin that we have was transferred to him, and he was punished as if he himself had committed that sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So he took our sin so that, there's that, there's that purpose uh, kind of clause, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So the idea is that Jesus took our sin, paid for it on the cross, And then we took on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So the wonderful thing is even though we continue to sin, you know hopefully we're repenting of that where we're growing more godly day by day though we continue to make mistakes though we continue to sin though we continue to have those moments um where we give into the flesh rather than walk by the spirit we will stand before god on the day of judgment and god says that he will not see our sins but rather he will see the righteousness of god and that is why we know we are going to be in heaven with him So a wonderful blessed truth oh any um any questions any remarks um It's been a good full study. I've been talking a lot. All right, so let's go ahead and do this. Let's go ahead and uh, close out with a word of prayer then.